Hey, everybody. This is Volts for, what month are we in? October 11th, 2023. Catching up on 20 years of political journalism. I am your host, <laughs> David Roberts. So I'm sitting here with my good buddy, Brian Boitler, uh, who is a political journalist living in Washington, D.C., has been a political journalist for a long time. We've known each other for a long time, been involved in this mess of political journalism for a, a long time. He has worked, Brian, where all of you worked? Every, everywhere. The American Prospect? Did you do that one? The, the <laughs> no, new, I didn't do that one. The New Republic? Yes, I was there. Did you do an American Progress stint? Or no, am I no, making that no, up? you're misremembering. I, I was actually <laughs> with you at Grist. I think I was on a freelance right. contract for like six months or a year, way back in like 2006. Smokes, I forgot about that. I worked at a, a bunch of places when I was like a pup. So the, I think Raw Story still exists. Oh, right. My first reporting gig. Raw Story. And uh, But I really got my training as a reporter at TPM. I was there for several years. Right. That's the one I was trying to call to mind. The, yes. The, so spell it out for people. It's Josh Marshall's uh, site. Yeah. It used to be Talking Points Memo. That's, I think, still the URL, but it's just TPM. One of the longest standing. I mean, still, still going strong. I rely on it all the time. I'm friends with my old editor there. He's still basically like running the day-to-day -day there. I think the world of TPM. Um, and then a very brief stint at Salon, which I enjoyed, but then the New Republic came and was like, join us instead. And so I said, yes. And I did that through a really tumultuous period from like 2014, I think, to 2017. And then I was mm -hmm. editor-in-chief yeah. at Crooked Media for six years. And, uh, and now I am independent. Yes, this is the occasion for the pod is my friend Brian has left Crooked Media and is now launching on his own, launching a newsletter because all the cool kids now have newsletters, a newsletter called Off Message, where he is going to continue political journalism. You should all go sign up. I've uh, learned an enormous amount from Brian over the years. And so uh, I thought on the occasion of uh, Brian's birth as an indie <laughs> self-employed journalist, uh, welcome to the fold, uh, that we would uh, sit down and catch up, uh, you know, and I guess you could say, does the world really need two white bearded middle-aged guys of roughly similar socioeconomic backgrounds <laughs> and ideological outlooks <laughs> affirming one another's priors for an hour? You know, maybe not, uh, but... This is my pod, and if I want to have an indulgent episode periodically, that is that is my right. As an independent, you know, we got no bosses anymore, Brian, to tell us not to do this. So my two favorite flavors are waxing nostalgic and vigorous agreement, and like we're just gonna so we're gonna get right gonna into give that your then. listeners all of that. <laughs> uh, all right, I feel like one of the signal characteristics of political journalism, and I expect this is probably always been true in all times and places is just that a lot of stuff happens <laughs> one thing after another happens and it's a constant scramble and so you can do it for a long time and you really do not get many opportunities to sort of step back and think about kind of the arc of politics as you've experienced it over the course of a career I guess this is you know I guess what people used to do is like report their whole lives and then become 
opinion columnists and 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 write and write books. But anyway, we're, so one of the one of the things I want to do is just think a little bit about kind of the arc of American politics that we've experienced and where that leaves you and kind of what you what you think about it and how you're thinking about politics has changed over experiencing all this. So you, when did you come to political consciousness as an adult, would you say? It was definitely during the George W. Bush presidency, the first term of the George W. Bush presidency. And it was it was actually like less Bush v. Gore, although in hindsight, once I became politically awake, it kind of reverse incepted me how important it was. Like, <laughs> yes. It's just, we've been on a wild ride since then. Like that was a moment when the Gingrich revolution could have been snuffed out maybe and like yeah. normalish politics resumed. My estimation of the importance of that episode has, as you say, risen steadily more or less ever yeah. since ever since it happened. And now I see it as sort of like the turning point in U.S. politics, the pivot point. So it, it was 9-11 and the Iraq War, and, and I, I went through a like relatively quick transition as like an undergraduate from like, holy crap, what's happening? Wait, we got to do something about this. Oh, George W. Bush is going to do something about it to like, wait, these seem like crazy ideas. What did Iraq have to do with that? And like by 2004, I was like, this is nuts. And I voted for John Kerry that year, and I've voted for Democrats ever since, and I've it was after that that I decided I want to go into journalism, but I knew I would end up being like a liberal journalist and that I'd have a really hard time just ignoring everything that had happened and, you know, going on TV or writing in newspapers as if I wasn't aware that things had gotten so bad or gone so far off the rails. But like <laughs> before this, did you have your callow libertarian high school, college period? Did you go through that? Not really. I think I did vote for the libertarian candidate in the 2000 election, but <laughs> I voted for Nader. Yeah. Confession time. But I was in California. I came from a really reactionary part of California. Um, I think the expectation for most people who graduated high school with me was that they'd like vote for Republicans their whole lives. And that seemed like stuffy and distasteful to me, but also, <laughs> you know, the Democrats, the Clintons, whatever. And so just like protest vote, Harry Brown, libertarian candidate, 2000. But it was it was never like, I, you know, I, I'm sure I did some of the reading, you know, like the libertarians love to do the reading and then talk about the reading. But <laughs> like, I know it was never like, wow, Frederick Hayek was on to everything. And so it, it really was just like a quick transition from like total political naivety to the conservative movement in the United States it like has a really disturbing vision for the country and blocking them from power has to be like priority one and kind of everything else falls beneath that and, and is shaped by that. I entered the same way. And this is, you know, maybe this is something to do with our sort of micro generation. I mean, one of the things I sort of meant to mention is that I faffed about in grad school <laughs> for a while, getting a philosophy degree after college. So by the time I sort of wound my way into journalism, I kind of slipstreamed into journalism right alongside your cohort, sort of you and and Matt and Ezra and all the, you know, and then like the birth of the net roots and all that stuff. One of the sort of interesting features of it is that I've always been about five to seven years older than most of the people I think of as my peers. So I'm like, ahead of you guys in life stage. Like I had kids while you guys were all still living in group houses and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like I'm seeing your future. But anyway. You look younger than us though. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, that's because <laughs> I, I kept the same Abby my whole my whole life. 
But yeah, like to me also getting involved in politics, the occasion was look under the veneer of quote unquote normal, boring, you know, like this is what I indulged in in the 2000 election back when I was really callow and really disconnected and not really not paying attention. You know, I was sort of went for the whole like duopoly. The parties are the same. It's the, it's the system, man. It's the system that's broken. And who cares which face of the system you vote for, man? Voting for Nader based on all that horseshit. And then, <laughs> but, you know, pretty quickly watching 2000 and then watching 9-11 and watching Iraq, pretty quickly my whole posture was under cloak of normal politics, there's something rising on the right and it is ugly. Mm -hmm. And it is like there's an authoritarian, illiberal, reactionary movement stirring beneath this facade of normality. And I need to, you know, be the town crier. <laughs> I need to go out and bang on pots and pans and say, look at this, like look beneath the surface at what's happening. And so it's interesting for you and me both preventing this rising reactionary movement from taking power has always been one and the same with our journalism and our engagement with, with political journalism. I have a, a story about this, which is like, I think that if the Iraq war hadn't happened or Bush v. Gore hadn't happened or just things had been a little bit less extraordinary in the post 9-11 period. Like I was at Berkeley, I might've you know, done the flip from like 17 year old pseudo libertarian to like what you were talking about, a Naderite progressive or socialist or something like that, just because that was very much the milieu there still. But then like 9-11 did happen and then Iraq did happen. And the imperative to like try to knock Bush out of the White House was very high. And, and the mistake of the 2000 election loomed really large. And I, it was 2003, probably or four, I attended, there was a live debate at Berkeley between Christopher Hitchens um, and Mark Danner, who, <laughs> who I, it was a journalist. I, I haven't read anything by him in a long time, but he was at the New York Review of Books at the time. And, and they were having an argument about the war. And that's what the debate was about. And like, obviously Hitchens had his like really signature flair and charisma and like pithy everything. And Danner was this more studied professorial type. And he was like, correct about the war, but that's not how debates work. Right. And so Hitchens, <laughs> Hitchens won. Um, yes. but like I was taken with the fact that that's what they got to do with their lives. Right. And I wanted to be able to do stuff like that. And I kind of wanted to like bring Hitchens esque persuasive abilities to like the big moral issues of the day without being glib and wrong about them. <laughs> um, and like, Everything since then has just been kind of like the Iraq war, but it's some other extraordinary, reactionary, dangerous thing. You know, it's Sarah Palin and the birthers or the effort to repeal Obamacare. It's just, it's just emergency after emergency after emergency. So like you never – like there's never a shortage of things to be passionate and right about um, in like the, in, in the hope of – in the hope of like – Yeah, so if you want to rail against the machine, there's been no – Right. Plenty of machines to scream against. Yeah. We have no shortage. Another thing about the 2000 election that I wanted to say is, you know, it's very paradigmatic in a bunch of different ways. But the main lesson I've taken from it – and this is a lesson that I feel like I've learned again and again and again has sunk in deeper and deeper ever since then, which is when a time comes of political chaos, right? Everything's up in the air. Nobody knows exactly what's happening. There's a moment of 
high potential energy, right? And no one knows which direction it's going to become kinetic, right? There's this sort of doubt and uncertainty, high potential energy in the air. You get these moments in politics periodically. And watching how the two sides dealt with that was so instructive because on the Democratic side, as you well recall, immediately it was how is history going to judge us as we do this, right? What's the right thing for America? What's the fair thing to do? Let's meet in the middle. Let's be patient. You know, Al Gore, like whatever you think about him, like genuinely in that moment had noble motives in mind, had had history in mind and the larger, um, you know, welfare of the country in mind. And they were basically the entire party was performing as though the entire episode were being overseen and judged by some sort of referee <laughs> who was applying basic rules of accuracy and fairness. And basically like they were trying to please the teacher, trying to please the referee. And then on the other side, when chaos comes up and you've seen this happen a million times since then, no one on the right had a moment of doubt <laughs> or hesitation or scratching their chin and pondering the judgment of history or pondering what's fair in the big picture. No one, no one on a blog, in a magazine, in politics, no one had that moment. They all, like a school of fish, immediately recognized this is a moment of uncertainty and chaos. Chaos is a ladder. Let's fight, 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 fight with any tools necessary don't give a shit about consistency. Don't give a shit yeah. about fairness. Act and then react and then yes. act again and then react again. Always, always push our interests, no matter what we said before, no matter what anybody else says, no matter what may be fair, blah, blah, blah. Just act on our interests. Push, push, fight, fight, fight. And then secure the victory. And then once you have the victory, then you have all the time in the world to come up with pleasing stories about why you did what you did and how it was all fair after all and why we just need to move on and why we don't need to dwell on the past and et cetera, et cetera. Like once the thing's over, then you can smooth it all out. But when there's chaos, immediately go on the attack. And we've seen this, like this is the essence of the two parties ever since really. And you could say the same thing about 9-11, like you could say the same thing about Iraq, just like when Iraq came up, as you say, there were all these people on the left sort of like ripping their hair out, like, what about this? But what about that? Doing the Hamlet, like, you know, maybe this, but maybe that, like, what's the bigger picture? Like, what's history going to say? And on the right, it was just like, here's a moment of chaos. Let's fight to advance our interests on every front at every moment. And that's, uh, you know, that's just like, the deepest lesson I have written on my psyche about U.S. politics ever, ever since then. Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a version of David Brooks and say like I think there's a happy medium in between. Like I like that Democrats <laughs> will like survey the nation, like what are the pressing needs facing the country, and like not like they'll they address them all perfectly right then and there, but at least they'll just be like, oh, okay, like we need to, uh, the roads and bridges are bad, let's b rebuild them. Uh, <laughs> you know, new parents don't have enough money, let's, let's try to give them some money, you know? And Republicans don't really engage in that kind of like assessment and they don't even think that the government should be doing that stuff. And it's really hard to like bring that analytical 
bent to things if a you're an ideologue and you and you think you're not supposed to do it in the first place but b if you're just saying like i have to say and do in the moment what is necessary to gain power like you're just going to be inconsistent all over the map all the time and that's why republican policy is always a bad fit for the moment it seems like but like the flip side of it is then you think well let's just compare records and like who has which presidents have been better for job creation which president, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, uh, actually passed an infrastructure bill versus talked about infrastructure week all the time? And like Democrats own that game and nobody gives a shit because there's <laughs> like you said, there's no referee. Exactly. If there's a referee to be like, I've tallied up your column and your column, dims are out ahead on improving people's lives. There's just no one, no one to do that. Yes. And so that's why here we are in the year 2023 and Republicans are like crushing Democrats on who's better on the economy. Oh, my um, God. And it makes no sense. I mean, like, and I bet you if you took a poll of the public and asked who's better on infrastructure, Republicans might win that one, too. Or at least it would be like 50-50. But it's like it should be 100 to zero, right? It's a simple <laughs> – and it's not. If evidence were involved in any way. But, but get back to the history a little bit because – and tell me if this was your experience too, sort of like 2004 was like the early first nadir <laughs> for me because, you know, you and I both got sort of like activated against Bush during his first presidency for very obvious reasons, reasons that in retrospect seem, you know, like he hasn't come out better <laughs> with the passage of time. <laughs> like it all looks even worse than it was. Yeah. And then 2004 came and I, that was the first time I remember an experience that would also be repeated several times over the years, which is me thinking, well, this is obvious. Like what, I don't even really know how to mount an argument here. I just want to say, look, like I just want to hold my arm out and say, look at all this case closed, <laughs> right? Like what, what is even, and yet America goes and reelects him. And I was just flummoxed by that, absolutely spun off my axis. But then after that, we started this arc, you know, of 2004 forward where Bush sort of fails on his social security drive and Dems win big in the House in 2006. And then there's the rise of Obama and that race and all the hope around Obama and the election of Obama. That whole period from sort of 2004 to call it like 2009, <laughs> let's say, yeah. let's give Obama one year of that. That was a period that as I think back on it, if you're a younger person than us, as there are many out there, um, you know, if you came into politics later or if you came into politics around like 2010, say, you've never experienced a period like that where it actually felt like, oh, my God, the forces of decency are rallying. We're going to move forward again. There's hope. Things are sane. There's a guy in charge who is speaking in complete sentences and is clearly intelligent and is clearly a good person, a good father, a good husband. Like that whole period feels like a weird dream yeah. <laughs> in, in, in retrospect. But it's a dream that people younger than us have never had any taste of. Like if you came in in 2010, it's been all shit since then. Yeah. All wall to wall. Like – at least for us, there's this weird, hazy memory of the idea that things could get better. 
Yeah. So, I mean, to pick up where I left off in college in the, that Hitchens-Danner debate, like, so it was like, okay, there should be really eloquent spokespeople, but not for the Iraq war, but against it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that was a time when Democrats, they were not making a dent in, in, in that direction, right? Like this was yeah. John Kerry reporting for duty, yeah. right? Oh, um, like the young people won't get that illusion, but, <laughs> but it, it was like a signal moment in Democratic politics prior to Obama. And it was the era when Democrats were like agonizing themselves over whether do we have a religion problem? Like maybe we're not winning because yes. we're not appealing to, to churchgoers. Thinking that nominating a war hero would like get you something from the other side, right? Yeah, the referees <laughs> would say, look, like like George W. Bush, kind of a draft dodger, John Kerry, war hero, case closed. You're not allowed to call this guy a coward because yeah. he's a war hero. That's, I'm blowing the whistle on that one. Where was that referee? It never showed up. <laughs> And, the, and and like the, you know, the swift voting actually left a lifelong impression on me because yes. initially I was like, well, people are just going to be uh, like super offended that Republicans are tearing this guy down in this way. But A, they weren't. And B, I was also demoralized and put off and like came to lose respect for Kerry and the Democrats for not standing up for themselves. Right. And just like right. waiting on the referee. Right. Yes. Waiting on the referee is what they're doing. And like, th there is no dignity in that. And honestly, like for all the things that like you and I spend our time arguing with other people on the internet about, about how to optimize politics or tweak policy in this or that way to, to make polls move in whatever direction is like, throw all that out and just act like you have some pride in yourself and will stand up for yourself when people smack you in the face. Yes. And your, a lot of your political problems are probably just going to go away. Like you would if you were just a person. Yes. <laughs> right? and like like a, and be a person. I, wi I honestly wish I thought politics were a more elevated craft than this, but it's like, how do you become popular in high school yeah. is a better question to ask yourself. Not having good arguments. Right. It's not having good arguments. It's not conducting polls and then going around to the people in high school and saying what the polls say they want to hear. And it's not like running for class president with an item list agenda. It's just like <laughs> being chill. You know, it's being a reasonable <laughs> yes. person, but also like not not a pushover and signaling strength in these sort of like nonverbal being comfortable in your own skin. And yeah. just like, how do you, and like life is like that too, but politics also. And <laughs> John Kerry was flunking that test. He was like, you are acting like somebody Nelson Muntz would point and laugh at if you were in high school <laughs> right now. And it left this like lifelong impression on me. And it's, it's like at the core of my politics today, it's the basis of a lot of what I write about. Yes, it's sort of the animating message of your of your writing in the past several years. And I assume your, yeah. your, your new newsletter, which is the same. Like you have the tripartite failure right in that episode, right? Is an, a one, you have the right being nastier than like no matter how cynical, you know, you can never keep up. At the time, I was like, God, that's just like so gross, grosser than, that's so out of bounds. That's so obviously gross. So like one, the right being grosser than you think they're going to be. Two, Democrats being passive in the face of it and trying to be dignified and not dignify it with an answer and not get in the mud and all this and wait for the referees to show up and save them. And then three, the mainstream political press failing to convey that 
a Rubicon has been crossed, that something has gone out of bounds, that something is now not normal, that it's not normal for a political movement to mock a veteran's service. That's just not like we are the kind of people who are outraged about that kind of thing, right? Like people just don't know, average citizens don't know what's normal and, and what isn't. You know what I mean? They pick that stuff up through signals, through trusted people they know and through media. And if the media says like, oh, well, they're just mocking his war service and how is that going to affect his chances in November? Then people are like, well, I guess that's a thing we that's do now. That's how they roll. That's hard <laughs> I guess that's it. how they roll now. And that that tripartite failure is basically the template over and over and over and over and over and over again ever since then, reliably. Like yeah. You could, you could go back to last week and find one if you did. Totally. Pick a, I mean, pick like, a week. Republicans are expelling Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer from their office from space their in the Capitol to be, to be like as retribution for not saving Kevin McCarthy's ass. And it's the same thing. It's like they're just smacking him in the face. Are they going to, well, I, uh, this is just, it's, it's so disappointing that they would do this. Like, no, stand up for yourself. Yeah, I know. And remember when the asshole, who was it, yelled liar at Obama during the State of the Union? Yeah. That episode also, I was like, well, Jesus, like, that's so outrageous. You know, it's so obviously outrageous. Like, but again, like, it's only outrageous if people react as though it's outrageous. And if they just don't. It was Joe Wilson, right? Yes, and apparently that's just like a thing we do now is like right-wingers shout at the president. As he's <laughs> yeah, constant. Now it's like the whole Republican conference instead of just I the know. one guy. Ba back then, people will have to trust us that like that was really shocking and outrageous. But like pick an episode. It's all that same basic framework. Yes, th this thing, stand up for yourself, is like a big – it underlies a lot of the work I've done over the last few years. It's one of the big reasons – I launched off message. And, the, and another big reason is like the net roots, I feel like arose in some way as a response to, to that kind of thing, if not that exact thing. Yeah, right. No, exactly. And my, and my recollection of the net roots is that it was premised on two things, right? Like one, first and foremost, you got to crush the Republicans. But two, Democrats have proven so far to be really shitty at that. And Everyone in like liberal politics, I, I recall, or most people in liberal politics anyway, they were cool with these two ideas living side by side. And, you know, after Trump won, I kind of expected a revival of that kind of righteous ethic. Just huh. like Democrats should be a little bit more confrontational with Republicans, especially when Republicans have power. And if they don't, liberals like the whole progressive ecosystem, et cetera, should be feel unencumbered to criticize them for it without worrying that they're helping the Republicans in some way or not presenting a unified front against the right and Donald Trump and authoritarianism or whatever. But it didn't happen. Like the politics of overcaution dominated in the four years of the Trump presidency. Well, the then, immediate response to him winning was, oh, we weren't overcautious enough. <laughs> yeah. In the run-up to this, right? Like that was the immediate... Uh, I mean, when, when Democrats won the House back in, in the midterms in 2019, like the first thing they did was like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi went to the White House. And I mean, I, I realized this was a feint and it was meant to embarrass Trump. And so, I, but they said, let's do a $2 trillion infrastructure bill together. Yeah. Um, like, you know, you got them, you know, it's like <laughs> instead of everything we've seen the last two years is so unacceptable and like accountability is here for you now. 
And look, the water's warm. If you decide you want to do anything good for the country, we're not going to say no. But that's not our main mission here. Our main mission is to expose what you've been up to, the things you've been hiding from the public. That's all coming out now. You are in for the colonoscopy of a lifetime. And that was not the attitude. And I, I was, it's not like I was shocked or anything. I was not like, but I, I still don't understand the mindset that convinces a party and its leadership after suffering so much abuse from this guy that like, you're not gonna do something about it when you win the power to do something about it. What was it, Josh? um, Josh coined a term. Oh, right. He called it bitch slap politics. I think he's, I think think he has since uh, (laughs) revised his, I don't know if he has a new term for it. I think he's, uh, whatever. I mean, it's fine. Bitch slap politics. Like it conveys something real. Yeah, it's like playground stuff. It's not a rational exchange of ideas. It's just like if somebody comes up and smacks you and then people are standing around in a circle laughing and you start into a soliloquy about how unfair it is that they slapped you. Like, this is um, brainstem level stuff going on here. You know, this is stuff that operates on a much deeper level than ideology. The Paul Pelosi hammering to the head. I mean, Jesus. this is where... Right, okay. I had an, um, an argument with a friend who disagrees with me around that time, because I thought, well, this is something that Donald Trump is essentially responsible for, and Democrats should talk about a lot now, while everyone is still shocked and appalled by it. And Democrats, of course, did not really want to do that. And this argument was about whether they were right to pivot back to whatever, you know, inflation or crime or whatever the thing happened to be. And I was like, do you honestly believe that if the shoe were on the other foot, and some left-wing person or progressive person took a hammer to Elaine Chow's head now, two months before the election or whatever. Like, you would agree with me that the election would be over and Democrats would lose, right? That would be the end of it because it would be the only thing that anyone talked about. It creates a moment. Do you or do you not exploit that moment to advance your political interests? And basically, right-wing media just is a giant machine built for that explicitly that purpose when a moment happens bring all the guns turn all the guns in one direction dominate conversation with this one thing and democrats just don't won't do that and this gets to my central question this is the main thing i wanted to there's no answer to this question but i want to ask it anyway because this is <laughs> what try. this is what haunts me and keeps me awake at night so you know i'm talking about that tripartite failure of like republicans being grosser and nastier than anyone thought Democrats still not fighting, not getting angry and fighting in response. And then the mainstream media mooshing over it all with this sort of blanket of both sides, you know, mush that obscures responsibility and obscures consequences and obscures the sort of nature of it. All that, those criticisms were all, as you say, alive and well in the net roots in the early 2000s. This mm-hmm. is what the net roots came up to say, like, fight for Christ's sake. Like, look at what's happening. Like, this is crazy what's happening around Iraq and no one's out saying it. Like, someone come out and say it. Like, that was the impetus of the net roots. And so basically, fast forward literally 20 years, Brian. Mm-hmm. 20 years <laughs> and... All those critiques are exactly the same today as they were then. And all the behavior is more or less the same. And I used to think back when I started, like, 
these dynamics are happening under a veneer of normality, a veneer of normal politics. And my sort of job is to sort of strip the veneer and show you the dynamic beneath. Because assuming that if more people saw and recognized the dynamic beneath, then they would just naturally recoil and change things. But then, you know, you could cite a bunch of different episodes to make this point, but obviously the big one is Trump winning, right? Trump comes along and there is no veneer, zero veneer, like, like not only no veneer, but like he will actively destroy any veneer that his allies try to, to, mm -hmm. to throw up, right? He will actively say, no, no. That's not the reason. It's just because I hate people and I'm cruel. Like he won't, he won't let you veneer him. And it's sort of like true for democratic weakness and it's true for the mainstream media's failures. It's all the same as it ever was, but there's no veneer left. So like, what's my job now? I can't strip away the veneer. There's no veneer. The dynamics are sitting out there in the open, visible and obvious to the naked eye. And yet people are not recoiling and nothing is changing. So like, what do you do now? Like this is this is my existential basically since like 2015 forward. This is my sort of existential crisis. Like if America can see directly and obviously this dynamic and it doesn't seem to mind it, like it's not recoiling, right? There's no backlash, then what do I do then? Like maybe this just isn't like the country I thought it was. Like what I like literally like What's my goal now? Does that resonate? Yeah, I, no, I, I, I think I do have an answer to this question, and I don't even think it's that complicated. The only like addendum I'd make to what you just said is that it's twenty years later. I actually think that like the the positive effect that the networks had on democratic politics from two thousand six to two thousand eight or whatever it was. Like that's kind of gone and it got shut down, right? It got yes. pretty it got shut down by the establishment. And it would and, and absorbed in some cases by the establishment too. And like the absence of it, I think, is like very strongly felt because there isn't a loud chorus of liberal voices who are who are willing to be a little bit iconoclastic and like not worry about presenting like a, a, a progressive movement in disarray or a liberal movement in disarray and aren't worried about like what the various congressional offices will think of them and just say like, we don't think that you, the Democrats, are like running an optimal opposition strategy to this <laughs> threat. I mean, the I think that the truth is that the Iraq war era was like also had very little veneer. I mean, George W. Bush was a more polished person and he, you know, he. Well, I think about like Dick Cheney, like Dick Cheney's the essence of the guy who is an absolute monster yeah. in a suit talking calmly making you feel just like, oh, this is a calm guy who knows exactly what's going on. But I trust you remember, this guy. I mean, like, like when I say the word torture, like I bet you a single image comes to your head and it's the guy standing on the thing with the, with yeah. the hood over his head in crucifix position. Like there was no veneer there. That was politics in 2005 and it was awful. And the net roots was like Democrats point at that and call it awful. And if you don't, why are we here to help you? Like what? Like, right. if you can't help yourself, like, why, what do you want from us, right? I think that that was very healthy and it doesn't really exist anymore. Well, it seems like what happened is that when Trump won, it kind of threw everybody a little bit off their axis. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it's just the danger of Democrats losing again has become so 
acute and existential that everyone's terrified into yes. into like tiptoeing. I don't think it's it's like corrupt forces or capture. I mean, there's some level of capture there, but like it's risk aversion. It's, it's fear, and like it's totally well grounded. It is yes. scary, right? It's fucking scary. I don't. I don't. I, I don't begrudge the people who get frustrated with me for focusing a lot on Democrats in my writing and and criticizing or in, in many cases praising the way they respond to things instead of attacking the Republicans. Because as you say, what's the point? Like we all agree, like it's all out there in the open. There's there's nothing more I can do than just be like, see, it's bad. Like the guy's mocking injured veterans. He's saying, I find injured veterans distasteful and I don't want them around me. Like that's just like, I don't know how to argue that that's gross. How would you even argue that that's gross? It just is viscerally on its face repugnant. So what do you even say about it? Right. So there's a, I mean, when Trump won, I think in a weird way, like the political world was a little bit lucky that he also won the House and Senate. I mean, like that led to bad things too, but Democrats were like completely locked out of power. And so really all there was, was just like taking stock of what this horrendous formation was doing with their power. And also like, oh, look at the information that's coming out about Trump and like his business ties and the Russia stuff. And like, and so for that two year period, you know, that's what I was writing about. And, and also, you know, the, to the extent that I thought media wasn't conveying the gravity of the situation well enough, there was an element of media criticism in there, but like it, the, the Republicans ran everything. And so that was the focus. It was when Democrats won back the house in 2018, but then much more acutely when Joe Biden beat Donald Trump, that it's like, okay, like we're still in this like twilight struggle against authoritarianism. It's still extremely important that Democrats do their opposition politics well, but now they're the ones with the power, or at least they have more power institutionally in Washington than, than Republicans. What are they going to do with it? And, and how are they going to exploit it to weaken the opposition so that they stand a better chance of defeating them in the next election? So that means you're writing a lot about Democrats. You're doing a lot of like in-house critique. And I think it's like the answer to the riddle you pose. Like, what do we do to try to effectuate positive change or, or better politics or whatever it is when Republicans are so naked is to be willing to like look in-house and see how things are going. And if you think that Democrats are like, inexplicably letting a, an opportunity to exploit pass them by, you can just pound the table about it. And I mean, it's not, it's not as intellectually exciting as writing about policy, which is interesting. It's like puzzle solving, and, but it, it's real. And there was like a few years we got to do that. A few, yeah, <laughs> like a, these brief little lacuna in our, in our careers where we actually were just for a, like a year policy mattered just for a blink of an eye. I, I enjoyed those times immensely. Me too. What about this idea, you know, the big fight these days is, you know, on the left, there's this faction of people more or less singing your song, which is just quit trying to act like this is normal. <laughs> quit trying to be normal in the face of this. Convey that it's outrageous. Convey that it's out of bounds. Attack, fight, like do politics. Brand yourselves as good and brand your opponents as bad. Like <laughs> crazy. I know, right? Brand the Republican Party as bad rather than 
anytime you mention the Republican Party, it being in the context of how fucking much you can't wait to work with them on bipartisan <laughs> this this and that, right? So just there's a faction of uh, people out there saying this and have been saying this for many, many years. And then there's a sort of faction, you know, that's like actually what a w- America wants from Biden is that he's normal. He's not Trump. He's not crazy. He's not fighting all the time. There's not all this fighting. He should, in fact, be more normal, make more gestures towards, you know, sort of centrist positions. You know how like Obama used to sort of make concessions to border security and he used to make concessions. You know, he used to make concessions to his opponent's arguments and try to find this centrist road forward. And this would pull in more swing voters, basically the the opposite of what you're saying. And, you know, there are there are uh, nuances on all sides of this, but. What do you think about that basic argument that what what wins for Democrats is being kitchen table focused normies who understand your reactionary impulses and will acknowledge them and not going to criticize you for them. But we're going to try to gently nudge things forward a little bit. What do you think about that basic argument? So I I don't think that like the insights or the beliefs at the core of those two visions are are totally incompatible. Like I think that you could in theory have a very muscular confrontational politics that was run by a party that had a very moderate policy agenda. I do want to put an exclamation point on that. They are, this is something I feel like needs to be better understood. In some respects, those two axes, the sort of lefty versus centrist policy axis and then there's the sort of pugnacious yeah. <laughs> versus accommodating axis, fighting versus not fighting axis. And to some extent, those are orthogonal. Like you could come out in different places on those. Absolutely. You know, what do I really think is that if Democrats are trying to to be 100% optimal, like right on the top of the curve of like what maximizes their chances of winning elections, I think it would probably be some version of confrontational, pugilistic, pugnacious, you said, politics and like, you know, being chill about policy, not trying to be too radical or whatever. But it just seems very strange and wrongheaded to me to focus on perfecting the policy appeal when like the party leaders aren't doing the pugnacious thing right. Like that's where the untapped potential really is. Any additional margin you can get by adjusting your t- child tax credit to be just so is like tiny compared to that. And so my main beef with the people who say Joe Biden should be more centristy, more moderate in his policy and more, uh, you know, uh, accommodating to Republicans is like, it just makes me want to pull my hair out. But like, (laughs) how do you think your hypothetical medium voter comes to the conclusion that a particular politician is moderate or not? Is it... (laughs) Yeah, is it analyzing policy positions on their website? You know, and it these are mostly policy issues that Republicans weigh in on. But like, yes, I guess abortion, you know, the big moral policy questions of the day, Republicans could gain a big electoral advantage, I think, by saying we're no longer forced birth people, right? Mm-hmm. And we no longer want to abolish Medicare. Like that would help mm-hmm. them. I don't deny that. But I don't think that like – I, I wonder I, – <laughs> I I almost wonder if it would I mean this is the thing is this is the whole of our past 20 years is always thinking that like 
there's some threshold, right? There's something that could happen that would snap us out of this horrendous equilibrium. Presumably, there's something extreme or obvious enough on one side or the other that it would break us out of this 50-50 balance. But all I've seen over the past 20 years is things that I think <laughs> will do it, not doing it. And like Trump didn't do it. So like, would that even make that big of a difference? Like I, I find myself just kind of speechless. Like I don't know what would change public opinion at this point. Like, like if Republicans have not been grotesque and like if the public is still saying on polls that the Democratic Party is more extreme than the Republican Party, like a year after the Republican Party tried to coup, like what could literally what could break us out of that equilibrium? Like if they flip-flopped on abortion, would that do it? I don't know. Like I like if if Trump literally shot someone on Fifth Avenue, would that do it? I don't know. Like it's at this point difficult for me to even imagine what could break us out of this frozen 50-50 horrendous equilibrium. You know, the institutions and incentives aren't set up for it, but if if Republicans could clean slate themselves from Trump in the last, you know, 40 years of their politics and become like kind of Christian social, you know, like a European center right party. Yeah. I think that they would win elections by huge margins in the United States. Do you? Like, I wonder about that because I've really come to think that in politics, having a truly furious, activated, well-funded, well-organized minority is better for you than having a sort of majority that's vaguely on your side. I almost feel like having this army of like cultish zealots, you know, has advantages for the Republican Party that don't necessarily show up in voting totals. You know what I'm like? Like just in clean energy that I cover, in, in wind energy, like they're out organizing opposition to wind energy on the ground in a way that absolutely just dwarfs anything that the left is doing. And you don't necessarily see that show up in vote totals, but it affects the political balance in the country. I don't know. I'm like, you'd have to duplicate the United States and make a new one without a Fox <laughs> News and without like the Schlafly's and shit, you know, like the billionaires who are who are giving over fortunes to make sure tax rates stay low and saying any reactionary politics you have to engage in to win that fight, just do it. Like, I agree with you that it's very potent and it makes breaking out of the 50-50 rut very hard. But, like, it's Republicans trying to hang on to the 50%. It's not it, – and that and that making it difficult for Democrats to get to 55 or 60. It's not like Republicans are experiencing a big growth, yeah. like, benefit from – you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so I, I do think that, like, if if you could just stop, reset, realign, and then hit play again on, on the United States with – like a, a European center right type Christian thing, like a lot of the Romney Clinton yeah. type voters would go back to the Republican Party, yeah. but very few Obama Trump voters would join the Democrats. But it, it's all these poor, um, you know, high school educated white working class voters that came out of nowhere to vote for Trump. They yeah. were not previous voters. The question is whether they would just go back under their rocks or would they continue voting for the best they could get? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but so I don't really see myself as having a zero sum argument with people who think that like policy is the main lever Democrats can pull to optimize their odds of winning. I, I think like who are the Democrats who overperform in states or districts where they, you know, Democrats shouldn't be doing well or whatever. And 
I think that they think that they all look like Jared Golden. And I just don't think that that's true. Like, they look like a lot of different things. Some of them look like Jared Golden. Some of them look like dynasts like Joe Manchin. Some of them, though, look like John Tester and Sherrod Brown. And they're just, like, better at seeming like they have, like, personal integrity and they don't take a, a punch without swinging back. And they have this kind of, like, throw-the-bums-out mentality about yeah. Republicans. So and much like, of it is affect. And, like... Get that stuff right, and then we can talk about like the, you know, what is the perfect policy? Like, do you think that a hypothetical, like a median voter or, or a very typical voter, is going to think that you're moderate because you say let's all work together, or do you think that they're going to think that they respect you because when someone kicks you in the nuts, you <laughs> kick back, you know? And my experience of life is that. The best way to make friends and influence people is to act more like that than like always turning the other cheek and entering a defensive crouch. And they have this very literalist view of what capturing the middle is. It's like you measure the middle and then you build a contraption that can fit around it perfectly and then it is captured and now those voters will like you. But that's not how humans are, right? They're not yes. They're not like tallying up. And especially the people who, you know, I would say are closer on the personality spectrum to the authoritarian reactionary personality, right? Like that's a big, broad spectrum you know, you have sort of like Trump at the one <laughs> far, far end of it. But there's many, many varieties. But that personality so much operates on the id, so much operates on this subconscious level where if someone kicks you in the nuts and you respond with a policy argument, that just looks like weakness. Like there's a signal sent there that's nonverbal. And so much of politics is this nonverbal sort of non-propositional um, id related work. And I feel like the problem is that, and this is one area where all the people who think that, you know, the left has become captured by these sort of highly educated, you know, white upper middle class people, I do think has some purchase in that those kind of people project what they would want to hear, which is rational persuasion, right? And they think if someone just came along and told me, we take fucking vaccines in this country, <laughs> you have to do it by law fucking line up that that would be awful you need to change people's minds but i feel like i feel like they don't recognize that like for a lot of people and this is like something i get a lot of shit for saying publicly but here we are at the end of a podcast probably nobody's listening so i can just say it which is like a lot a lot of people respond better to that just to force and strength just to certainty right it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to get jabbed so just get over your reservations yeah, yeah. I agree. So I think something um, kind of happened in parallel to the the net roots thing, but also I think maybe has some roots in the net roots thing, double roots, um, which is, and like I have a, I'm working on an article about this that will probably land as this podcast does, but that the, the net roots thing prefigured a quant takeover of liberalism and, and the democratic party. And it like, it used to be that I think Democrats would use the word science as a cudgel to basically signal to the public. Like Republicans are medieval in in various ways. They, and, you know, mostly this has to do with climate change, but it has to do with all kinds of other things. And we are the party that trusts science and believes in science. 
And I think that like at the time and even to this day, like, like it's a good signaling device. But I, I, I think at some point it, it actually became totalizing part of the liberal identity. Yes. And it became, as efforts to quantify politics always do, largely aesthetic, right? Because in actual fact, politics is full of people <laughs> and people are very, are very hard to quantify. Like, I want good quantitative methods brought to bear in, in politics and policy, but, like, I want people who are numerate to be doing, like, the analysis of what that means. And it's you like— You see all these articles flying around, like, why did SBF fool so many people, right? Sam Bankman-Fried into oh, his— Oh, man, this is in my article. This is well, in why, my article. Why? You're because he's me. got that <laughs> affect. He's a white guy. He went to good schools. He talks in a certain— tone and manner. He uses numbers as though he's a numbers guy and doesn't have any social graces, which makes him seem like this sort of maladapted genius. You know, like he's, he hits all the affective aesthetic marks. And that's what most people who think they want quant in politics, that's what they're falling for is the aesthetics of precision and being a super genius who's not a dumb partisan like all the others, you know, but like there's no correlation between that aesthetic and accuracy and, and value, right? But it, it wouldn't matter so much. It, it would just be this small band of reasonableness people who who throw around numbers a lot, <laughs> ta like talking to each other on the internet, except that like people have sold democratic politicians and their election committees on the idea that like these races are highly scientific, like running an optimal race is really a matter of plugging some stuff into a computer and doing what the computer says. And it's just not the case. And like, we go back to the like, politics is a lot like high school thing. Like if you try to make friends by plugging in like what you think people want to hear into a computer or <laughs> plugging in numbers into a computer and it spits out what the computer thinks people want to hear and you go into high school and you read those things, like you're going to get a wedgie. You're going to get a great big wedgie. <laughs> but, the, you know, like politicians are not particularly numerate and they believe this stuff. And it has like, I believe, infected democratic politics very deeply and very detrimentally. And, you know, I want them to be using numbers well. Like it is worth knowing if a policy polls at 20%, because if it does... That's probably really toxic. And even if in your heart of hearts you think it's right, you should make your peace with not talking about it, okay? But that's like a guardrail. That's at the very edge of – and you can move You can move between those guardrails all you want. You're, like you have a policy that polls at 45%. Okay, just figure out a way to talk about it that, that sounds positive. You're going to be fine. Like it's really not that big a deal. There's a lot of like looking for their keys under the streetlight type of things going on in that whole field of political science and social science around elections, which is just like there are certain things that can be measured, right? Numbers of votes or whatever or, or demographic characteristics. And so you go measure those and just like come to your conclusions about those and assume that those are the important things. But there's all kinds of stuff that you can't measure going on around that that you're neglecting if you – just are measuring what can be measured, you know, like if, you, yeah. if you're just measuring people's responses to policy proposals, then you're going to read that poll and go, oh, what people really care about are policy proposals. But like, no, that's the assumption. That's the assumption you brought in. It also just sort of presupposes that the ambient conditions are going to be the same from when you conduct the poll to the election. Yeah. But like, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, like, 
if you are so hidebound to what the polls say about policy or whatever, and then something weird happens right before the election, you're not going to be well primed to capitalize on it if you can or defend yourself from it if you need to. Because you're going to have one playbook and it's the one that, that like the computer said was the right one. But like, I remember 2014 very well. This is another like election that left a big impression on me. It was the election where Democrats lost the Senate and thus eventually the Supreme Court. So it was a big deal. And it was like, for most of the election, basically a dead heat. The economy had recovered most of the way from the the Great Recession and Obamacare had been implemented, so the horrors of the healthcare.gov were in the <laughs> in the rear view and and like Obama was in entering his lame duck phase, so he was more like freewheeling and and I think he was doing fairly well in polls. And so the election looked like it was gonna be a jump ball, which is really good for the incumbent party in the midterm. And then there was an Ebola outbreak in West Africa. <laughs> and Donald Trump, actually, then still just a TV game show or whatever guy, and the rest of the Republican Party, they didn't like stop to consult the polls. They were just like, Obama, Ebola, terrorists across the border with <laughs> Ebola. That's what's happening in the world right now, and you should be scared about it. And like you can go to Real Clear Politics or whichever poll aggregator you want and look at the generic ballot in that midterm. And right when the Ebola thing happens and Republicans demagogue the hell out of it, that's when the polls split and Democrats lose that election in a landslide. It was just that. That's it. Yeah. And like, obviously, I'm not saying you have to wait for an Ebola outbreak to have a successful election, but you have to be nimble. Right. Things like that happen all the time. And you need to be prepared to pivot and attack on those things that come up. And you have to have some intuition about whether you're on the right side of it or, or the line you're going to take on it is going to appeal to people and make them want to vote for you. But like Donald Trump sent his supporters to sack the Capitol and there were brave Democrats like Jamie Raskin and Ilhan Omar in hiding in the Capitol complex. And they got to work drafting impeachment articles right then and there with, I think, their idea being, we're going to finish this election and then we're going to impeach the bastard, which was the right instinct. Yep. And Nancy Pelosi adjourned Congress. And I, to this day, have every reason to suspect it's because she was worried that if she didn't adjourn, the push for impeachment was going to boil over before they'd had a chance to focus group it or poll test it. Yeah. And she didn't want, that's, I mean, I don't have like reporting to back it up, but it is consistent with how the democratic leadership through the whole Trump era did everything. And that's crazy to me. It's like, just understand that you are on the right side of something horrible that just happened. And as bad as it is, you have an opportunity to use it to your advantage. And the main thing is, don't go out and ask people whether they think it's a big deal. People don't fucking know. Like people yeah. don't have the background. They don't have the history. They don't know what's a big deal and what isn't. The way they find out it's a big deal is by you acting like it, right? So if you're going and asking them if it's a big deal right there, right there, you're sending the nonverbal signal. Well, we'll get mad about this. If you guys are mad, but not if you don't want us to get mad, which is just exactly, like... Exactly, exactly. Like, uh, my finger here is possibly measuring the wind, but if you don't like my finger here, I'll put it away. I know. I can put it somewhere else. And yeah. I, uh, <laughs> another, another episode I always bring up and talk about in this same capacity is the Benghazi thing, the Benghazi hearings. You know, Republicans had 
I don't even know what they got to by the end of it. It was like multiple dozens of hearings on Benghazi, which was just nothing, which was just bullshit, right? And they did it and did it and did it. And if at any point during that, if you had asked a typical Dem consultant to advise Republicans, right, they would have said, the public doesn't really seem to be caring about this much. Like you're kind of embarrassing yourselves. You're there's a lot of other policy work you could be getting done. Just like on the traditional measurements of political sentiment, it was dumb to just attack, 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 attack like that, like a mindless zombie. But they kept at it. They kept at it. They kept at it. And lo and behold, they found her emails. Yeah. And boom, there goes the election. So polling would have told you, don't attack, attack, attack. But like, as you say, things come up. And if you're always geared... For the attack, right? You're ready when they come up. You're ready. Like you're always ready to use anything that comes up for your benefit. And and this sort of short-sighted, like, you know, the immediate poll response to what you're doing is negative. Oh, well, we'll run away from it. You know, it's just so short-sighted. Like there are long-term plays here, long-term gains. There are narratives you build up over time that you have to come back to over and over and over again. And just this sort of like snapshot poll taking is just uh it doesn't even do what it's supposed to do which is give you a good sense of where the public is right it doesn't yeah. even do that yeah i mean I, it does for a, that day and that's it <laughs> right but like it's so shallow right like the, like i keep saying the public just does not generally have deep-seated feelings about most of these issues we are living through a, a recrudescence of the Benghazi thing right now. And I don't know if it's going to yeah. go anywhere the way, the way, yeah. but like, I remember with when Hillary Clinton testified for 11 hours before the Benghazi committee and everyone on the left was just overjoyed because she owned the Republicans so hard. Oh, the memes. So she owned them so hard. And, and like, and it's true, like the media coverage and the immediate aftermath of her testimony was very positive because she, took it to them and she answered all their questions and made clear that there was no there there and blah, blah, blah. And like, this was celebrated as a big turning point moment and like a proof of the theory of Hillary Clinton. It didn't stop Republicans at all. They just kept hammering away yeah, at it. They and kept like, right on going. <laughs> and th like, there is a similar kind of self-congratulatory thing happening right now. And I mean, I'm glad it happened, I guess, because it's better that it happened than it didn't. But like the, the witnesses in the in the Republican impeachment inquiry, which they admit is they, they only launched so that people would think Joe Biden did something bad. Like they brought in witnesses who are like, yeah, there's no corruption here or they're like in the impeachment. This doesn't merit impeachment. And everyone's like, well, there it is. The referees showed up and they spoke and they said there's no corruption and, and this doesn't merit impeachment. And so, you, you know, you lose by the rules of the game. Um, but like they're not going to stop. And it's because they know, like, maybe there's a 2% chance that they find a thing that is actually incriminating or that they can rip out of context to make yeah, it Yeah, or just looks that way, right? Or just yeah. looks that way mildly. It doesn't have to be anything. And if that happens, then the election's over and Donald Trump wins again and we'll be happy. And so they just do it. And I don't admire that they do it based on bullshit, but I admire that that's <laughs> how they think about they are always advancing their political interests, always, at every juncture, in every decision, and every principle is subordinate to that. That's really all I wanted from Democrats from like 2019 <laughs> to now. Like, why isn't there like a, a, a pound the table 
public inquiry about Jared Kushner and Donald Trump and the Saudis. Like, yeah. Well, just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Why not? They just sit back what and What else wait? are you doing? They sit back and wait for the mainstream news to cover it. They're like, this is a big deal. Please go cover this. But like the way to keep that in the news is to talk about it. Right? Yep. Talk about it. Have hearings on it. Even if nothing practical can come out of the hearings, right? Even if there's no obvious tangible policy or regulatory goal or legal goal, even if the only point is just to talk about it, if the media is talking about that, then they're not talking about something else, right? Yes. If they're talking about that, then they're talking about something that works for you. If you want the agenda to be something, set the agenda at that yes. thing and, every, agenda. and things will fall into place. David, I, like we, I promised at the top of this that we, this would be an hour of waxing nostalgic and vigorous agreement, and I think we've delivered. <laughs> we're killing it. Okay, final question, because we're over <laughs> okay. We're over our time, but I did want to address this subject, which is probably we could do a whole other pot on, but journalism, what is wrong with it? <laughs> journalism. So, uh, you know, I sort of have one foot in politics and then sort of one foot in this kind of technocratic analyst, entrepreneur clean energy technology, let's model, you know, let's use models and replace all the dirty energy with clean energy. This very kind of technocratic minded group of people over here. And then one foot in politics. And in my experience, the technocratic minded people recoil from the kind of discussion we've been having, recoil from the whole idea of like, oh, this team and that team, red team versus blue team. It's all so silly and base somehow and sort of like, and they have this image in their heads, which so many people on the center left seem to have instinctively, so many well-educated, you know, um, left people have in their head, which is that partisanship in and of itself is indumbing, right? It makes you dumber. If you choose a side, by definition, then you lose the ability to step back and see the bigger picture. So it's like, Partisanship is distasteful almost by definition for a lot of people, even though I think the vast majority of them in that world, if you pin them down and said, hey, do you want to create a decent social safety net? <laughs> you know, like they would say yes. You know, like uh, in policy terms, if you pin them down on their positions, yes, they are on the left. Yes, they are on a team because the other team hates all those things and wants mm -hmm. to destroy all those things and wants to destroy those people, right? Like the other team hates their fucking guts and they're sitting back saying, ah, team sports, I don't want to bother. So the way this translates in our particular cases, a lot of people want to think if you are a partisan, if you have decided that like some things are bad and some things are good, <laughs> like, like one of the parties is trying to fuck everything up and take us to an authoritarian nightmare. And the other party is like fitfully, weakly, half-acidly resisting a little bit. Then you can't do good journalism, right? You've lost your quote unquote objectivity and you can no longer do good journalism. So just tell me like how you, especially after 20 years of doing it, how you think about the relationship between on the one hand partisanship and on the other hand, journalistic virtues. Yeah. So like what I don't think is a journalistic virtue are, are like indefensible professional habits or mental habits that are like meant to create the impression of fairness, but they're actually not rooted in anything real. They're just kind of made up and it creates a lot of bad quality political journalism. And it's almost all just in the realm of political journalism. Yeah. The aesthetics of fairness. 
Yes. I, uh, I wrote an article for Crooked Media several years ago now about how media should embrace its liberalism, but I had in mind like the small L liberalism and the, right. and the things about journalism that I think are important and that I bring to my work are the ones that are, if you make a mistake, you correct it. You try to understand the whole range of facts before you write about it, if only to avoid making the kind of error that then because you're a liberal journalist, you feel impelled to correct, right? <laughs> um, that you write with precision and that you're not engaged in a sort of propaganda enterprise where you intentionally omit right. things that are inconvenient for your argument. You're kind of like steel manning your argument. You're, you're, you're looking for like what you think would be the best objection to what you have to say and sort of pre-butting it. Um, but you're doing it w without like putting a lot of spin on the ball about what that objection is or trying to make it look ridiculous. You know, those are the kinds of things that I, anyone can do, even if they're partisan. Right. And the awareness that you might be and probably on some timescale are wrong. Yes. It's so funny because, yeah, it's like the the political journalists who are mostly like on cable news and um, but also write for the, the political desks of the of, of the Beltway Press or or <sighs> the, the, the New York Times or wherever else. Like they have this disdainful thing about anyone who chooses a side because they're just doing team sports. But then the writing is basically like, whoa, isn't this team sports thing really exciting? <laughs> I know. Um, none of the things that those people think that they're doing with integrity are incompatible with having an ideology. They're not. You don't have to be like Peter Baker, who right. swears that even his family doesn't know what his opinion is. Right. And like, you know, like, I've, I've, I mean, this is a, a, a little mini rant, but I've met lots of, you know, I used to hang out in D.C. a lot more. I used to meet a lot more of these types of journalists. I used to hang out a lot more with journalists. And one of the things you find is, and tell me if you think this is true too, is people like Peter Baker who go through their whole career explicitly and deliberately refraining from forming opinions, consequently become very bad at it. Like if you get them in a bar at night, late night, get a few drinks in them and get them to actually talk about something substantive, what you find is like mush. a stunning degree of sort of naivete and mush. Yep. Because the way you get good at having opinions is by, is by stating them and arguing about them and refining them, them yeah. in response to feedback. And so these people are like supposed to be the sort of most sophisticated, right? Because they're in the game, they're, in, they're, they're insiders. But in fact, they're so clueless about the larger picture and so clueless about policy that like, they're some of the most, they're like naifs. They're like some of the most naive people I've ever met about politics. If you think that studious neutrality between the parties in your journalism requires you not to form opinions about anything, then like you end up reporting about the parties in a way that is unable to be declarative about anything factual if the if the underlying fact is in your mind derogatory about one of the parties or the other but right but you can get involved in arguments about who's hypocritical and who said one thing but a different thing that's like you can have opinions about these sort of like shallow matters exactly. of, of surf, but that's all you can have an opinion about. And that ends up being actively misleading, I think. It, it does. And like, I don't think that there's anything that would like break the rules of like legacy media journalism to like throw that model out and to report on U.S. politics in a way that's intelligently critical or, or 
aware even of what's happening in U.S. politics. Like there's this game that people used to play on Twitter where like imagine this happened in a different country. Like right, if right. you look at how, how U.S. news media reports on, on authoritarian takeovers of other countries, they're very clear. Like this party believes in democracy. That party is trying to overthrow it. There, ha- there is no reason why the New York Times political desk or, or the Beltway rags or cable news that their marquee reporters couldn't do that about Donald And it doesn't mean that they have to be like tribunes against fascism and on the side of the <laughs> Democrats, right? It just means explain what's happening in politics accurately, but you have to be willing to accept that the accurate thing is that the Republican Party has descended into this authoritarian formation and it it's hostile to democracy and it's using its power to try to, to warp the game board so that it at least stands a better chance of winning than than pure numbers would have. And it's gotten so much that way with so little veneer, like I said, that we're almost in the weird position where the mainstream journalists are more invested in cover stories that make the Republicans seem like they have some reasonable area of disagreement than fucking Republicans are, right? Like you talk to these nutbags in the House they don't care about appearances. No. They're not trying to, on one hand, on the other hand, anybody, right? They're not pretending anymore. They're like, we hate our opponents and would like to string them all up and destroy the <laughs> government. You know, like, they're not pretending anymore. And yet the journalists are sort of doing it for them, sort of like rubbing the the the, the sharp edges off for them, even when they don't seem to care about doing it anymore. It's surreal. So final, final question. You know, there's a lot of talk about the right has this giant machine at this point. They've got Fox, the biggest cable station. They've bought up all these local TV stations. They've bought up all these local newspapers. They dominate or own the social media (laughs) sites now. They completely dominate radio. I mean, they have, you know, really come to dominate the media environment, the information environment. At the very least, they are, I think, of equal size now with the supposed mainstream media. So, and you know, and there's all this lamentation, which I've engaged in many times myself, that the left, the Democrats don't have anything like that. They do not have a giant propaganda apparatus waiting for these affordances that come up so that they can exploit them, right? Like that's what the right-wing media does. It's what the left-wing media does not have. Like something comes up that they could make a big deal out of and push into the news for days and gain some advantage on, and they just don't because there's just no one, like who would do it? So this leads to a lot of argument about what do we want to see? Do we want to see an active, pugilistic, explicitly left media that is the mirror image of right media and then – the weak need, one hand, the other hand, MSM in between them? Or do we want the mainstream media to get better? Is that what needs to happen? So like what media ecosystem do you think would be healthy? What would you like to see? So, I mean, if if I had like a billionaire patron and he was like, <laughs> I want you to start a media company that will be big from the outset because I'm going to put a billion dollars into it. Um, <laughs> I I would want a big broadcast hub like Fox. I would not want it to operate quite like Fox because I think Fox engages in a lot of lying to the extent that they end up owing like a billion dollars in (laughs) in damages for defaming people. You know, it's like, that's a mess. And 
I, I just like I don't think anything good comes. That's a billion uh, dollars well spent, though, for the billionaires. I mean, <laughs> you, you have to you have to admit for the billionaires, that's the best friggin' investment they've made in the decade. I don't want like a liberal or progressive propaganda outfit that throws the things about liberalism that I care about out the window. Like people should be honest and people should take account of facts and you shouldn't conceal things because they're inconvenient and all the stuff we just talked about. Right. Right. Um, but I do think that like you could have a big liberal network that embraced those healthy aspects of the journalism profession, the, like the ones that I bring to my work, you bring to your work and staff it with people who will operate in that way. Like there are good broadcasters like Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes who see the world clearly and can focus on what is genuinely important and like beat a drum about things that they think matter, even if the mainstream media has moved on from them without engaging in dishonesty or agitprop or anything like that. And I mean, look, those are very talented people and it's not easy to find them, but, but I promise you they're out there. Like, Remember when Tucker Carlson decided he wanted to create something like that on the right and like couldn't find anybody? <laughs> Basically yes. couldn't staff a place because th there's nothing like that on, the, on that side anymore. I said like the small L liberal journalistic values are, are not incompatible with having an ideology. I think they are incompatible with American conservative ideology. Yes. I wrote a whole article about this, which is about the media taking sides. Like the media on some level cannot be neutral and objective about everything. It's got to be on the side of reality, right? It's got to be on the side yeah. of telling the truth. It's got to be on the side of being fair. So if a political movement has explicitly aligned against those values, then yeah, journalism has to be against that, right? Like there's a, there's a certain point you can only back up so far before you've backed your way out of journalism entirely. If there is to be journalism, then you've got to stand up for that at least. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's very fitful the way journalists, the, the subset of journalists that we're talking about here. And I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. So you're, you know, this is like people who have cable news gigs and people who work at the political <laughs> yeah. desk of newspapers. It's, it's, it's 200 people or something like that. It's not right. a huge universe. Yeah. It's a very insular world. The ways and times at which they do what you're talking about is like stand up for the concept of truth because that's supposedly what journalism is about, which means sometimes saying that Republicans lie all the fucking time. Some will occasionally acknowledge that, but there's no expectation or standard around it. And like Republicans are at war with the vocation of journalism, yet the journalistic class can be very defensive of the profession. Um, like when, you know, when... Barack Obama is rude to a White House reporter or whatever. Jesus. Um, but like remember when he tried to kick Fox out of the of the briefing room and like other journalists rallied to their defense. That was mind-boggling. Yes. And so here here you have a whole political party and a political movement underlying it at war with the vocation of journalism and like the impulse to be like, well, we'll hear both sides politely. <laughs> tends to overwhelm the the self-protective, we're a guild and we won't have you destroy us mentality right. that they'll apply at other times. So I think that you, you build a big institution where you kind of codify those things so that the programming is true, but it's also pugnacious and it's also has like internal integrity and won't be pushed around by people who want to destroy truth. 
Like that's a recipe for success. And like, if a billionaire is listening to this and wants me to, to start that up, I will do it. I'll bring David along. We'll do a good job. Um, Please don't make me manage anything. So I, you know, I, I don't think that you could retrofit an existing outlet into something like that. You know, if outlets are going to evolve, evolve in that direction, it's going to be by attrition. It's going to take decades. How would you it's gonna, advertise? It's going to be pe people from our generate. How would I advertise it? Like how, what would be the public facing? Because CNN, you know, has been in the doldrums and the only thing they can ever seem to think of to do is to double down yet again on being straight down the middle. You know, like it's the only reform they seem to think possible. You're trying to get away from that. So what would you tell the public that your news, would you talk about it as though we are coming from the left but we're committed to fairness? Or would you talk about it as though we are simply journalists telling the truth? Like, would you frame it as a left thing? I, I don't know that this would necessarily be the tagline, but I would just say like bearing witness faithfully. Like that's the whole mission. Mm. Um, and you don't necessarily need to say that you're of the left, although that will come screaming through the programming. Oh, yeah. Fox will make sure everybody, <laughs> yeah. Fox will. Well, I'm like, you know, who Fox kid, you know, got away with fair and balanced for a couple years. Like nobody... <laughs> But, uh, you know, I guess the risk in all this is that you don't know what the future holds. And, like, I think a model like what I'm describing would be successful for this period of American history. But, like, it might not, like, meet the moment in five years or ten years. And then you might have a defunct cable company or something <laughs> like that. But um, well, Are we even going to have cable in five years? I mean, who knows? Or whatever, like, you know, whatever. But I do think that right now something like that would be extremely advantageous. And I think it's a bummer that it doesn't exist, but... I think there's a like kind of a cultural problem in like the liberal wealthy do-gooder class about what counts as spending money yeah. well or honorably. And, and like this idea doesn't fit into that picture, but it doesn't mean it, it couldn't happen. I would just like the billionaires to create left institutions that argue for the left. I mean, it sounds simple, but like I can list a dozen think tanks that are explicitly anti-government. Basically that's their whole reason for being. Where is the, think tank that is explicitly not just on this issue or that issue, but explicitly saying public capacity is good. Competent government is good. We can do good things with government. Like where are the, like so much, we, I feel like the left has just assumed that the public shares a lot of its bedrock values and thus has sort of stopped talking about them. And we're finding out over and over again, like just standing up for basic decency, treating people equally, not not excluding and being violent to people, just all that basic stuff that we would think goes without saying. I don't think it goes without saying, and I would like to see left billionaires create some institutions that go out and say it. So I think that a lot of progressive spending goes into getting the message out about various liberal do-gooder ideas. I just don't think that they're centralized in, a, in like a media hub. But the one place I would borrow from Fox is that most of Fox programming is not about the merits of Republican policy ideas. Like, they're not talking about... Oh, no. No. Hardly any of it. There are barely any left, right? I mean... Like, Republicans good, Democrats bad. Trump innocent, Biden guilty. It's just that yep. over and over and over yep. again. And occasionally you slip in a little something but or other about... But just mostly Democrats are bad. This is what I try to impress upon people. This has been the core message of Fox and all of right-wing media from the time Rush Limbaugh came on talk radio. It wasn't anything about the size of government or foreign policy or any of that. It was just the Democrats are bad. Yeah. And so now you've got this situation where you get like Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, who <laughs> Trump dragged him into this fraud case, threatened to kill him. He's had 
death threats from his own friggin' side, and he's still out saying he'd support Trump if Trump's the candidate because the bedrock of any Republican uh, politician is just Democrats winning is unthinkable. Nothing All could in be against enough. the left, period, yeah. no matter what. Yeah, and so, you know, if you're building a, a new giant media entity from scratch, yes, like mixing in heroic tales of America like rising from the ashes and building things with government is, is all good and well. And like, it would be a part of the programming. But I think that like the main thing is create the drum beats that the right is able to produce about the left that are almost always based on nothing. Make those happen about the genuine odiousness yes. of, of Trump and his Plenty movement. Of the material. Right. You will never fall short of material. And like, it, it is a good model. It is like, the few broadcasters who do do that are, I think, pretty successful at it. And I think that if you front, you, you'd have to front load it with that stuff and kind of pepper the policy and like, oh, like the, like the left is good on top of that and around that because, A, honestly, people get bored by policy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, the purpose of it, I think, should be to, to shine a light on the right and create unity against it, not shine a light on the left and like give rise to factional disputes because, oh, you're talking about infrastructure, but the bill didn't go far enough. And also what about, what about abortion? What about, you know, like if you base it on policy, like I think you end up probably not succeeding as a, as a market thing. And also you end up just like arguing amongst yourselves all the time about what should take precedence over, over what. And But, but this is what I think of as my, I mean, maybe I shouldn't confess this, but this is sort of what I think of as my basic political valence is like, I could take or leave the Democrats most of the time. Like, you know, I've got lots of criticisms. I've got lots of, you know, I could quibble about policy. You know, my allegiance to Democrats is is light at best. But the main thing that I'm engaged in public life for is to stop the ascendance of a very obviously reactionary authoritarian movement that threatens to destroy American democracy entirely. Like, that's my main thing. And I feel like if you had a media apparatus... You've got plenty of material to make that the main thing for lots of people. Like, that's just like, you know what I mean? Like, there's so much, there's such a story to tell there. And so many people feel this way. I feel like it would be, like, I can't believe no one's done it. Like, I can't believe it's not out there. It baffles me. Amen, brother. We should send this to, like... You know any billionaires? I've actually met a couple... Clip it to me and I'll send it to them. <laughs> All right. All right, Brian. Well, we've uh, talked for way too long. This is more nostalgia and vigorous agreement than uh, than anyone signed up for. But uh, I really appreciate you uh, walking down memory lane with me. This is fun. Oh, are you kidding? This was so much fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed uh, your work and uh, good luck on your new Substack. Everyone should go uh, sign up and subscribe. Offmessage.net. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.